0: Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we're joined by David Vine, who's a professor of political anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. David's newest book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, was recently published by the University of California Press. The United States of War is the third in a trilogy of books about war and peace. The other books in the trilogy are Base Nation, how U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World, and Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia. David, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Vincent.
0: And thank you for your work, man. This is, uh, as an anti-war veteran and in living in the U.S., um, it seems that one of the biggest issues of our time that we don't talk enough about is U.S. empire and U.S. militarism. So any activist organizer... Um, scholar, author, journalist who covers this issue, I give you a tremendous amount of respect because outside of climate change and a few other issues, it's probably one of the darkest uh, issues to constantly revisit and research. So, thank you.
1: And it well, It's an honor to get to speak to you about the book uh, and you in particular, given the work you've been doing
0: well, thank you. on the issue. Let's uh, let's start just very simple. Uh, this is the third in a trilogy, and why don't we start with just a very basic question, sort of how many military bases do we have today? What is the, the landscape of U.S. military bases look like in 2020?
1: Yeah, right now there are around 800 U.S. military base sites outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., and they're located in around 80 countries and colonies, territories, uh, and this is, by all accounts, the largest collection of foreign military bases, extraterritorial military bases, bases beyond U.S. borders. Um, the largest collection in world history, larger than any empire, nation, or people uh, prior. Uh, and you know, I, I didn't think much about U.S. military bases abroad. I think you know, you surely were were m- much more intimately acquainted than I and other members of the military and people who have members of the military in their family, but as someone who was never in the military and uh, didn't have a a close relative who was, I didn't think much about bases until I got a very lucky phone call about 19 years ago, uh, actually about a month to the day before the attacks of 9-11 from some lawyers who were representing a group of exiled people. These are the People are called the Chagosians. They once lived on the island of Diego Garcia, which is a very isolated island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, where the U.S. has a very large air force and navy base. And this base only exists because the Chagosians were forced from their homes, forced from their homeland on Diego Garcia and the surrounding Chagos Islands. And they were deported about 1,200 miles away. This all took place in the late 1960s and 1970s and i got this lucky phone call asking me to to do some research studying the effects of the expulsion on the chagossians lives and this in addition to opening my eyes to this really you know horrific and deeply sad to say the least story of what you know befell the, the Chagosians, um it also made me start thinking about wait, why do we have a military base in the middle of the indian ocean how is this protecting the United States? Is this protecting the United States? What effects are all the, all these bases? You know, these. I started to realize there were hundreds of bases around the world the U.S. was maintaining on a permanent basis. Uh, what effects are they having on local people, on peace and security more broadly, on again, on, on, on people in the United States, on the finances of the United States? So it led first to my book, Island of Shame, which focused on Diego Garcia, but in the context of this larger collection of hundreds of military bases, which then led to my, my second book, which uh, focused ex- uh, pretty explicitly on the whole collection of bases. Base Nation is the name of that book. Uh, and lo- you know really took on the larger questions of why these bases exist, why they've maintained, been maintained for so long. Uh, which then led me to this current book, which looks at the larger system of war. So in some ways, the, the trilogy sort of builds up from a, a micro singular case uh, to the global.
0: What year was your first book published, David?
1: Uh, it was 2009.
0: So 2009. So, so you, as you're studying and researching and writing that, and you're learning about what happened in Diego Garcia. The U.S. has launched both wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're in the midst of the global war on terror. How are your politics sort of changing at that time? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the sort of evolution you go from, from receiving that phone call to then eight years of research in the midst of two of the longest wars in U.S. history. Well, one of the longest.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I found myself very, I mean, I was pleased at many levels to have received that phone call, but after the attacks of 9-11, I felt um, quite glad that I was working on an issue related to U.S. military policy and related to, to U.S. wars. I, prior to that, had been focused on on gentrification in Brooklyn, actually, um, and the displacement associated with gentrification. Uh, so there, there was a thematic link in that I was now studying. Displacement related to the creation of this one military base, which also made me realize that the Chagosian case is, of course, not not an isolated one, and there are a series. I was able to document twenty, at least twenty cases in which local people, mostly indigenous people, have been displaced during the creation or expansion of U.S. military facilities, and that's just since eighteen ninety eight, um, and you know follows the. Dispossession and displacement of Native American peoples across North America uh, during the, the conquest of of lands across North America by the by the U.S. military and with the help of U.S. military bases. Then then the first military bases abroad. These were U.S. Army forts. Uh, so so my my work sort of shif- shifted to this different kind of displacement and. Uh, I think it, you know, it made me pay more attention to Empire. Um, the, I think I was, you know, greatly helped by the analyses that were being provided uh, shortly after 9-11 to help us understand why these attacks took place and then to help us understand why the war in Afghanistan was launched. That was not the only option the Bush administration had. The Bush and Cheney administration could have treated the attacks of 9-11 as a crime like other terrorist attacks had been treated in the past and could have responded with policing and intelligence and diplomatic tools instead they chose war uh, they attacked a, a nation of course that had nothing to do with uh the attacks of 9-11 bore no responsibility except to the extent that the taliban was providing a very small piece of land on which al-qaeda was uh had had refuge um so, I, I benefited greatly from the, the analyses of, of US empire and US imperialism, not just in that moment and, and in the war that followed, the war in, in Iraq, which again was, of course, a, a war of choice, a war of choice, a war that did not have to be fought. And like the war in Afghanistan, a, a, a catastrophe that is actually hard to put into words how, how disastrous. Uh, both wars have been for the people of both countries and for for our country, for the United States. Um, but then also maybe look at at U.S. imperialism over time from independence to the present.
0: I was going to ask you who were some of the thinkers and and uh, you know who helped you better understand and contextualize uh, the history of U.S. foreign policy. I know two for me uh, were Chalmers Johnson and Noam Chomsky. know, people I started reading while I was in the Marine Corps and then immediately after, especially Chalmers Johnson, really was sort of that trilogy of books, the blowback trilogy really opened my eyes.
1: Yeah, the the blowback book in particular was so um, well-timed and helpful in understanding the attacks of 9-11 as a form of blowback dating to, at very least, uh, U.S. funding for uh, the, what, preceded al-Qaeda for Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen in, in, in Afghanistan. So, yeah, Chalmers Johnson and his writing about military bases, U.S. bases around the world was critical. Uh, Chomsky's work on, on U.S. empire uh, for decades uh, has, was critical. Um, as well as, I would say, you know David Harvey became very important, and Neil Smith, both of whom I had the luck and privilege to be able to study with, at the city city university of new york's graduate center lucky person uh, France, yes indeed um francis fox piven also was was really critical in my thinking uh, naomi klein cornell west among others right
0: on yeah, very, very lucky um we have tremendous respect for david still one of my favorite interviews was with uh david harvey i think we did like three and a mm. half hours and it was one of the funnest things <laughs> i ever did on the doing uh interviews let's uh Let's start from the beginning, okay? There's a lot of people, I think, who understand, uh, and we'll go through these different periods, but there's a lot of people, I think, who understand extreme U.S. militarism in the post-9-11 world. I think there are a number of people who get that. I think there's a number of people who get uh, what the US, how the U.S. has postured itself, say, post-World War II. Um, I think there's also a whole series of literature out there about this fundamental shift after the Spanish-American War. Um, but you trace this all the way back um, to Columbus arriving, um, to westward expansion, colonialism, uh, the genocidal destruction of Native Americans. Can, we talk, can you talk about the origins of U.S. empire and how the bases both facilitated westward expansion but then also led to further conflicts by establishing more and more bases? Sure.
1: Well, to start where you ended, I, one of the key arguments of my book, The United States of War, is that U.S. military bases really provide a a key to understanding uh, U.S. imperialism, to understanding the relationship between the United States and war, and specifically U.S. military bases abroad, U.S. military bases on other people's lands, Uh, that these bases have been critical to enabling war, to making war possible. But I also found in my research and, and show that US bases abroad have actually made war more likely. That when you build bases outside one's own territory, when you build extraterritorial military bases, they make war easier. They make it an easier policy choice for politicians, for other elites and leaders, um, intellectual elites, uh, financial elites. Uh, And what you see is a, a process whereby US wars created new military bases. Those new military bases tended to create more wars, which tended to create more military bases, which tended to create more wars over time. Um, And you can, again, as you alluded to, see this um, from the late 18th century, basically from independence um, through the 19th century and through the 20th and into the 21st century. But indeed, I, I do start my history of the United States of war, even farther back, um, going to Columbus, who was the first European to create a foreign military base in North America. Uh, Columbus built, in fact, the first two um, European military bases in the Americas. Uh, I was surprised when I was visiting Diego Garcia, excuse me, I only wish I had visited Diego Garcia. Um, I, in fact, wrote a book about an island I could not see, a military base I could not see, um, because all civilians are barred from going to Diego Garcia, as I'm sure you know. Um, I was far easier to visit Guantanamo Bay. Um, I was able to visit the prison there, Um, I was able to visit the base, which is much larger than the prison itself. The prison takes up a very small part of a base that's about the size of Washington, D.C. And when I was there, I was surprised to learn that Columbus had arrived at Guantanamo Bay on his second voyage to the Americas in 1494. This was news to me, but it, it seemed like this was not just, I mean, in a certain sense, it's a coincidence, but it's a coincidence that's revealing. It's a coincidence that, that reveals something about the nature of empire over time and about U.S. empire in particular, and made me see that to understand the long history of U.S. wars, you have to put it in the context of the long, longer history of European wars and European empires in the Americas. Uh, so I, I traced that, the, the sort of the prehistory of, of U.S. war and U.S. empire Uh, to the the European empires, the Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, French, British empires, uh, and show how the, the U.S. empire doesn't just emerge out of those prior empires, and especially the British empire, of course. But you see U.S. leaders during and shortly after the push for independence explicitly modeling the United States after the European empires, the the vision was one of expansion and conquest, and not just expansion and conquest for the sake of expansion and conquest. Um, similarly, not just war for the sake of war, but pretty much always explicitly for identifiable economic interests. Sometimes also political interests, the political interests of, of politicians. Uh, but but there were you know this was conquest for the acquisition of resources, for the acquisition and domination of markets. Uh, Their capitalism and is, is intimately intertwined with this history of war and specific capitalist interests, not just capitalism as an abstract system.
0: Can we talk about how those bases function both domestically and then, of course, being a former Marine, you don't really notice, but in the Marine Corps hymn, it starts with from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. And, of course, as an 18-year-old, you're not thinking about where that comes about. Um, but while we're domestically expanding westward, uh, while we're displacing indigenous peoples, we're also halfway around the world in northern Africa. Um,
1: yeah. Sorry, um, I caught oh, you mid-drink. This, no, no, <laughs> It's no, all no. good. Um, <laughs> and. By the way, this is coffee, not uh, not Guinness or something.
0: That's okay. Um, when we interviewed Peter, he had a glass of red wine, so don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> on the West Coast, a little early for red wine, but um, <laughs> at least on a normal day. Um, but I, uh, yeah, that was another thing that surprised me. And in, in my research, really going back to um, my my work on Diego Garcia and reading Chalmers Johnson, uh, I realized that you know often when people talk about U.S. empire, they do identify 1898 as the moment when the U.S. empire went global, um, when it expanded beyond North America. Indeed, that, that is the moment when, when the United States acquires colonies outside of North America. Puerto Rico, of course, the Philippines, Guam, de facto Cuba, the U.S. dominated Cuba for much of the the 20th century or first half of the 20th century as a kind of de facto colony and and took guantanamo bay in particular as a colony still held to this day despite the interests of the cuban and government and its people to have the the land back but i found that 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 the u.s military was all over the world from very early in u.s history it was establishing bases much smaller than some of the largest bases today, but specifically naval bases, leasehold bases, um, at strategic points, strategic markets around the world. From, indeed, the the Middle East, um, you know, the U.S. history in the Middle East goes back much further, the Mediterranean, the coast of Africa, South America, just to give people a sense of how global it was. And again, this is from early in the 19th century.
0: Now, I don't know because I haven't read the book, but... Do you sort of address any of the doctrines that pop up throughout time, and do you think that that is an important aspect to sort of examine in U.S. foreign? Po- so you have the uh, Monroe Doctrine, the Carter Doctrine, so on and so forth. I mean, are those important moments or or periods of history to visit that that sort of policy side of things and the political end?
1: They are um, for a few reasons. I think because they, especially the the, the doctrines that are sort of taken up by others, come to take on a power of their own. You know, the Monroe Doctrine in some ways wasn't all that significant when it was enunciated um, in the Monroe administration. It was sort of, you know, telling the European powers to keep your hands off, off the Americas. And largely the Europeans ignored the Monroe Doctrine. But over time, it was invoked by U.S. leaders. And then over time, it took on more power and became a justification for doing things in in the Americas. So it, it, it took on a power all its own, I would say. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine actually was an even stronger enunciation of U.S. power and a kind of threat, not just to the European powers, but to all the nations of the Americas. And basically saying, we're going to intervene, which is sort of polite way to say we're going to invade your country with our military if you don't play by our rules. And indeed, that's exactly what the U.S. government, the U.S. military did through the first two, two and a half decades of the 20th century, a constant, near constant stream of invasions of, of Central American and South American nations, Mexico as well, uh, and long-term occupations of many of these nations.
0: It seems that the Spanish American War, 1898, that one of the significant differences, as you mentioned, is all the acquisition of colonies, but also you note this, um, but it's something that Alfred McCoy has talked a lot about as well, the historian from University of Madison or University of Wisconsin, Madison, and that is the interplay between the techniques and methods used abroad to maintain empire, then coming home and being used, those same counterinsurgency techniques domestically uh, to put down workers, uh, indigenous people, and so on.
1: Yeah, no, that that is a, a really important dynamic that I think we can see operating in the present in, in, ter- in so many ways in terms of the, the post-9-11 wars, the war on terror, and the counterinsurgency strategies and the, the people who've been deployed to fight these wars, uh, the tactics, the techniques, the military equipment, uh, and again, sometimes the actual people um, being involved in, in uh, what essentially is a counterinsurgency strategy employed in a variety of ways against communities in the United States by, the, by police forces, um, but also by, you know, these, these militias that are increasingly recruiting, uh, veterans, former U S military personnel. But I think it's also important to point out that 1898 wasn't really all that new, you know, the United States, it was, it's a uh, country that founded on 13 colonies that declared their independence and started to call themselves states in the United States of America. All the other states in this union are colonies. And I feel like this is what's forgotten when we point to 1898 as sort of somehow distinctive. You know, what was going on that allowed the United States to expand across North America? This was colonial conquest. This was the acquisition of colonies in North America. But for many people, I think in in a certain way, this speaks to the way Manifest Destiny has, has shaped all our thinking and sort of naturalized the conquest across North America, that that was inevitable, um, that we stopped seeing it as colonization, that we stop stopped seeing the acquisition of territory as the creation of new colonies, which is what, and part, partly it's the language, they were called territories, but these were new colonies. Uh, it's easier to see when we look at discrete islands outside North America. But part of what I argue in in the United States of war is that really... This is a continuous process pretty much from U.S. independence through 1898. It's really after 1898 that we see a a shift in U.S. imperial strategies. The invasions and occupations of Latin American nations in the early 20th century were distinctive because here we have invasions, again, for capitalist interests um, almost always, um, and long-term occupations in, in, in places, but we don't see the acquisition of colonies. You know, the United States did not turn Honduras into a colony, at least a, a, a formal one, and that is an important distinction. In some ways, it, it ha- was and has been and is to the present a kind of de facto colony, such as the domination of the U.S. government and the United States over Honduras and, and equally Guatemala uh, and El Salvador, I would say. Um, So we see something new in, in U.S. empire, this sort of use of informal strategies of rule, of the creation of de facto colonies, and the increasing use of economic and political tools of imperialism to exert power and influence over other nations and peoples.
0: Now, I know we're flying through many decades and periods of history, um, which I'm sure as a professor might drive you nuts, but we also want to make sure that people actually read the book, so we're not going to give you too much in this interview. You have to actually read it yourself. Um, let's, let's go to sort of the post-World War II uh, period. How does U.S. Empire and the base alignment change? What does it look like uh, post-1945?
1: Sure. So uh, the the U.S. acquires a relatively small number of bases outside of North America through the middle of the the 20th century, really up until World War II. It's during World War II that the United States government acquires and builds uh, what is by far the largest collection of foreign bases in world history, Um, thousands of military bases and installations around the world built, it's important to note, with the help of usually colonized labor forces, the labor forces of of the remaining uh, European colonies, Britain and France especially. Um, After the war, the United States military shrinks dramatically in size. Many of these bases are closed, but a very large, really still huge collection of bases remains around the world, still the largest in, in world history. Uh, And that collection of bases expands, um, especially in the early 1950s as part of the – and related to the war in Korea, Um, but we don't see just a buildup in East Asia, although we do see a significant one there. We see a buildup in Europe in particular, and the creation of the kind of America town uh, bases, um, bases that – that really literally look like small and not so small American towns and cities complete with schools and hospitals and housing, suburban housing um, for families, not just military personnel. Um, Today, yoga studios, movie theaters, fast food, all the trappings, I'm sure as, as you know, of, of U S suburbia, sort of idealized U S suburbia. And this is what, you know, this becomes a major, symbol of the United States and a major way in which the United States comes to interact with the world. It's through these military bases. Uh, You know, at the same time, the U.S. is increasingly using covert imperial tools, covert tools of influence, uh, the launching of coups, of course, 1953, 1954, and Guatemala and Iran in particular, um, but a series of, of coups and other forms of covert meddling Uh, that accompany more overt forms of of imperial uh, rule and uh, imperial meddling, I think we can say, Um, specifically or most prominently uh, the war in Southeast Asia, uh, the war in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, which many date to the early 1960s, but really it's from the fall of the French in 1955 that the United States government increasingly becomes involved in a variety of ways and propping up the South Vietnamese government. And then of course deploying its own military forces in increasing numbers throughout the 1960s and, you know, into the, the mid 1970s.
0: And are they following, I mean, throughout this, that same period, you have a wave of independence movements and anti-colonial movements throughout the world. I mean, to what degree did the, the sort of mapping out of us bases follow the, you know, those events taking place at the time?
1: Well, in a way, this is a part of the story I tell in, in my first book, Island of Shame, and and discuss in, in, in this new book as well equally, uh, that, you know, during World War II, President Roosevelt really articulated a pretty strong anti-colonial rhetoric uh, and, and stance um, against the British and French empires in particular, saying that, you know, colonial territories would gain their independence and and supporting independence movements. But toward the end of the war, we we see a shift in Roosevelt's thinking and the thinking of other U.S. leaders uh, who come to support the ongoing British and French colonialism in particular and continue to practice U.S. imperialism in a variety of ways and U.S. colonial rule in, in a variety of ways. Uh, the Philippines gained its independence in 1946, but in many ways the Philippines remained something of a U.S. colony or de facto uh, colony in the, the years that followed in some ways to the present, although I would say over time the, the Philippines uh, government and the Filipinos have exerted more and more sovereignty and independence, um, especially th- after throwing out Marcos and, and the U.S. military presence. Mostly um, in 1992, um, but other, you know, U.S. colonies remained. And again, the language now is that of territory. But Guam, the Philippines, the Northern Mariana Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico—these are all colonies. They're in fundamentally colonial relations with the United States, um, even if we might like to call them colonies. The people who live there, you know, they might go vote on. You know, November third, but their votes votes count for nothing. Um people in d c are also living in a colony that's you know my hometown. We now have a vote as a result of a, a constitutional amendment. Um, but we don't have full voting representation in Congress, and neither do the residents of the u s colonies. Um, so uh, we we really see u s leaders. And this is the story I pick up in Island of Shame, and the story that Diego Garcia, in particular, illuminates. U.S. leaders really become quite fearful of the decolonization movement. They're fearful that the new, newly independent nations will side with the Soviet Union and the communist bloc in the Cold War. Um, you know, of course, that is the context in which uh, U.S. bases are maintained in the early 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, and not just maintained but expanded in number and size. And U.S. leaders begin looking for specific plots of territory, usually islands, on which they can build military bases, fearing that as nations gain their independence, as colonies gain their independence, they will throw the U.S. out of bases in their territories. And in fact, there are examples of that. Trinidad would be one um, in, in, across the Middle East. Um, U.S. military bases were, were forced to, to shut and close, even France, you know, threw the U.S. military out in the 1960s. Um, so U.S. military leaders and some diplomatic leaders began looking for islands in particular on which they can maintain military bases in perpetuity without fear of, of eviction, essentially. Uh, and this this is a, a, a trend that I think we can actually trace up through the present. It's evolved over time. It's not just confined to islands, but increasingly really since 2000, before 9-11. You see U.S. military leaders looking for small, usually isolated locations, if not an island in some, you know, interior or rural region um, without large population centers nearby where the U.S. can maintain what are now increasingly called lily pad bases, small isolated bases with relatively few military personnel, sometimes just military contractors. They don't have the families that you see on these big America town-sized bases, little Americas, as they're often also called. Uh, And we've seen these lily pad bases really popping up around the globe, especially in Africa, but also in Asia, Eastern and Central Europe as well.
0: Let's go through the period period. Before 9-11, I'm interested where you would sort of trace back or if you could trace back where we can see a buildup of military U.S. military bases in, say, the Persian Gulf, uh, Western Asia, um, otherwise referred to as the Middle East and so on. I'm wondering if there's obviously before 2000, I'm thinking here of someone's work like um, Michael T. Clare, uh, other people who have really traced this last like 40 or 50 years of U.S. militarism in that region.
1: Sure. Well, you know, I I think it does go to to World War II. And one of the stories I tell in, in the United States of War is at the end of World War II, the US military had plans to build a base in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. And US military leaders realized that the base actually wasn't needed anymore. After Germany surrendered, it wasn't needed to fight in Europe. It wasn't needed to fight what remained of the war in in Asia. But it was quite telling when U.S. military leaders and some State Department leaders advocated for and and were successful in in their advocacy um, building the base anyway. And why did they do that? Because of its proximity to U.S. oil supplies and U.S. oil companies that were. Uh, that had um, prospecting op- operations and, and had begun to extract oil and, and natural gas increasingly over time from the region. Um, so we can see the, the intersection of U.S. military policy and, and these economic interests um, dating to World War II. Uh, the U.S. maintains bases in the region for the first decade or decade and a half after World War II but it's really, and then gets thrown out of most of them in large part because of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, But it's 1979, and you asked about doctrines. The Carter Doctrine really has become U.S. policy to the present, which is sort of ironic given, you know, President Carter's reputation, you know, in many ways deserved as being an advocate for human rights, and, you know, certainly he wasn't the militarist that President Reagan proved afterwards. But he really starts the buildup of military forces and military bases in the Persian Gulf, what we tend to refer to as the greater Middle East, in 1979 as a response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Iranian Revolution. Uh, This buildup of bases and forces only accelerates under President Reagan, I would just say a quick aside that the the creation of the military base on Diego Garcia, while in the in the Indian Ocean, uh, while it is relatively far from the Middle East, it had U.S. leaders had in mind its ability to strike locations in the Middle East. Um, so we can think of it as another early step. But it's really through the 1980s that we see this very significant buildup of bases. And then we see their use in a variety of ways through the 80s in with Iran um, in particular. Um, but it's in 1991 and the first U.S. Gulf War, the first war against Iraq, that all the bases in, in, that have been built up in the Middle East, including Diego Garcia, are used extensively to, to, to launch this war. And then what is quite telling is that, again, once the war is done, was finished very Quickly, although with with the thousands dead and injured, um, Iraqis, uh, we see this collection and infrastructure bases remain in place. Um, they didn't shut down, um, despite you know the original the original justification for the bases was the Cold War and the Soviet Union, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. There was no Soviet Union in one thousand, nine hundred and ninety one. Soviets had left Afghanistan, um, and yet the bases remained. And what were the bases for? They were to protect oil supplies. You know, the Carter Doctrine said that the U.S. would use any means necessary to protect any threat to U.S. and Western oil supplies. Um, And that remained the policy, despite the disappearance of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. this is, you know, one of the examples where we can see U.S. bases abroad enabling war which then leads to the creation of more bases, which then leads to more war, which then leads to the more creation of more bases and war onward. Um, because of course, you know, the how did the U.S. fight the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? This very large infrastructure of military bases in the Greater Middle East made it all too easy for U.S. military leaders to choose war in those moments. I would argue.
0: And once you're there, I mean, for instance, during our second deployment, uh, we were stationed in Al-Qaim, uh on the western, in Al Ambar province, on the border of Syria, uh, right on the Euphrates River, and we overtook a uh, railroad station. That we eventually constructed a twelve point nine million dollar chow hall that had uh, lobster and soft serve ice cream and flat screen TVs and all the rest. <clears throat> That's not really the main point I made, but just to, you know, sort of touch on my personal experience with it. But it also seems that once the bases are there, once you open up these conflicts, once you uh, occupy uh, and begin this this level of, of militarism, that then there's also, it seems to be, geographical concerns. So once we were in Iraq, it wasn't too long before people started to immediately talk about Syria. Uh, Not because of the political situation internally in Syria, of course, you know, then exploding in 2011, 2012, 2013 and and beyond that, Um, but because of its geographical proximity to our existing operations. So it was we have uh, soldiers and insurgents uh, coming across the border. We need to be able to move into Syria. And I will say that there were, uh, you know, actions, there were missions taking place that were crossing into the Syrian border. Uh, You know, Sergio raises his hand. He was on one well before any of that was known, uh, official, whatever it may be. And that reminds me, of course, of Laos and Cambodia. Same seems to me to be a a very similar situation that once you're there, then as the military generals are sitting there, they're thinking to themselves, okay, because you know how they look at the world. I mean, they're looking at these maps and they're going, if the, if we're getting uh resistance from here, then the best case would be to surround this area to go into this area. I mean, they're just looking at these areas as like, I don't know how you would even put it, but it's like just for them, like a map of battle. And it doesn't matter if there's borders in the way or not. It's like, if that's where, The threat is then we need to go there and deal with it regardless of international law, whatever the official policy is.
1: Yeah. The bases in, in a sense, create new missions for themselves. You know, they, they, the bases don't literally create new missions for themselves, but U S military leaders and some other elites create new missions based on being in new places. They start to see new missions and uh, which become justifications for maintaining and frequently expanding the size of bases. Uh, we need to suddenly protect this base against X or Y threat. Um, and uh, the bases themselves come to take on a life of their own. Uh, we see this around the world, uh, but indeed in the in the Persian Gulf in particular, um, bases once established become very hard to shut down. Yeah.
0: The Let's talk about the post 9-11 era. How much has changed in that era? Of course, many of the people listening are, are, to this and, and who will watch this know of from our previous podcasts and my own work, what's happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia. They're somewhat aware, I think, of Nick Terse's work and people who have been following this military buildup in Africa over the last decade, uh, really starting during the Obama administration. Um, but what can you tell us that you think is maybe something that people haven't been hearing about this last 20 years? You know, how is it different? How is it the same? Um, And what do you think that, you know, the work that you've produced, how is it sort of, uh, you know, telling us something different than maybe people have heard?
1: Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, Nick Terce's work is incredibly important. And, you know, I think the thing I would point to there is just the way in which, the war on terror has taken on a life of its own. Uh, most people, I don't think, know that U.S. combat troops have been deployed to at least 24 countries since 2001, and this is according to a list put together by the Congressional Research Service. This is not, you know, investigative journalists. Um, so that's a minimum because I think, you know, as your example from, you know, being deployed to Iraq but ending up in Syria shows, um, I think it's pretty clear U.S. combat troops have ended up in other countries as well. Um, so the, the presence of combat troops around the world and conflicts around the world, the con- construction of increasingly large numbers of lily pad bases, um, as I alluded to before. But I think the, one of the other underappreciated uh, dynamics in the post 9-11 era is the way in which the military industrial complex, which President Eisenhower, of course, identified as he was leaving office um, turning over the presidency to, to President Kennedy, um, that he didn't just identify but warned about, has taken on entirely new dimensions of power and influence that are dominating not just our foreign policy but, but U.S. policy, period, because of course foreign policy ends up dictating domestic policy in, in so many ways, from budgets to, to other, other many other ways. Um, but, you know, the size of the military budgets uh, just dramatically expanded. War budgets plus baseline military budgets um, reached the heights that had only been seen in U.S. history during the heights of the Cold War, when the U.S. was facing off against another, another empire, the Soviet empire, um, and another, you know, hugely armed, nuclear armed adversary. The U.S. has maintained um, military budgets of a similar size and proportion uh, pretty much throughout the post-2001 era with some ups and downs, and, and the Trump administration has, has brought us back to the, the heights, uh, you know, really in, in U.S. history, other than perhaps World War II. Um, and where has this money gone? I mean, it's gone in a lot of places. Um, you know, it's paid for military personnel. And the benefits that, that are associated with them, but it's gone to the ha- hands and coffers and bank accounts of military contractors to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And you know, this has building on the growing power of the military-industrial complex since World War II has meant that the military-industrial complex is embedded. I would say in our society, in our political system, in our economic system, in ways that are underappreciated and that are going to be incredibly difficult to uproot, but that in my mind, we urgently need to uproot, Um, such as the power of the military contractors, the the weapons manufacturers, coupled with the power of members of Congress, coupled with the power of the Pentagon itself, um, you know, one example is that, I mean, like bases looking for new missions, uh, I think, you know, ultimately weapons manufacturers and the military itself is looking for new wars. And this is truly frightening, especially because of the, the talk of a war with China. I think many in the military itself, many in, you know, the sort of foreign policy, think tank, uh, mainstream military policy elite world are considering a war between the United States and China as inevitable. And, you know, this is beyond frightening that that people could conceive of a war between these two nuclear armed powers and conceive of such a war not getting completely out of control and leading to the deaths of literally tens of millions of people, leading to death, you know, on a scale not seen probably in human history possibly. Um, So I, I also think one of the urgent needs for people concerned about these trends, concerned about the history of U.S. war, is that we urgently must at all costs stop a war between the United States and China and stop U.S. leaders from inflating the threat of China, which is making war with China all the more likely. But the last thing I'd say on this is, you know, Trump, you know, sort of like a stop clock, been saying this for a while. Like I said, he's, you know, I think I know what you're going to say. He's right right on time. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, he criticized the weapons manufacturers saying that they love endless war. You know, this is great for their bank accounts. They make billions of dollars on war. They're just looking for new wars. Of course he was exactly right. Exactly right. Um, but he, uh, you know, more than anyone other, other than the Bush Cheney administration has, fed those weapons manufacturers tens of billions of dollars in contracts as he's boosted military budgets, um, you know, up to now around $740 billion in the current fiscal year. And that's not even the whole military budget. But we shouldn't actually let um, Democrats and Republicans in Congress off the hook because this is, again, the power of the military industrial complex. Mainstream, you know, the vast majority, sadly, of the Democratic Party, And almost all of the Republican Party, although not all, um, support these massive budgets. And, you know, it's it's very difficult for uh, members of Congress to oppose this kind of spending because you're so easily portrayed as being, you know, not in support of the troops or soft on defense using that sort of gendered language um, that speaks to the way that gender and ideas of masculinity actually play into this war complex and permanent war system yeah. um uh, you know uh, again identifying uh parts of the the problem that we need to uproot or again on an urgent basis in my mind
0: yeah yeah no that's a that perhaps is a conversation for in an, an another day because i do see it intimately connected in fact when i talk about why i joined the military i often bring yeah. up growing up in a culture of like hyper-masculinity, Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris, running around with guns, all that kind of shit. I wanted you to, yeah, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about these contradictions within the Trump administration. So on the one hand, I've read the reports in terms of contract money. It seems in some places he's even increased drone strikes. On the other end, You get a narrative from the mainstream press, and this is where you're exactly correct, that there is no uh, detaching U.S. foreign policy from U.S. domestic policy. The entire Trump administration has been bogged down in this. And I'm no defender of them. I mean, we need to get rid of them. I'm with strategically voting for Biden, as you know. Um, But I have found it quite hypocritical and unhelpful that the Democrats have tried to portray him as this sort of Russian puppet and all of the rhetoric, uh, the anti-Russian rhetoric. Um, And then also when Trump does say something like, hey, why don't we pull out of Afghanistan or Syria or why don't we talk to North Korea? Those are the moments when I go, "Okay, like a clock and who the fuck knows why he's saying it, but he is saying it. And if, for me, what's always been interesting about Trump, just like the primaries in 2015 and 2016, it wasn't what I actually thought he was going to do, which I knew was going to be horrific. It was that his anti-war rhetoric resonated with so much of the Republican base. I mean, I think people forget that Trump ran on this platform in 2015 and 2016 of just demolishing the Bush family. And Cheney and every, you know, and whether he believed that or not, of course, you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody really cares. But I find it interesting as someone who's trying to organize movements uh, that there are, in fact, tens of millions of Americans who are, are sick and tired of this shit.
1: So I'm, I'm so glad you talked about that, you know, in terms of important trends in the post 9-11 era that I think when you asked about don't get enough attention I think the growing anti-war sentiment in the country is is Im- critical to, to recognize and, and to build on, um, and I think is is actually one of the successes long-term successes of the anti-war movement that sprung up in opposition to the U.S. war in Afghanistan and then the U.S. war in Iraq, and you know m- often are, are portrayed as being failures because the wars happened. Right. You know, First of all, I think the, you know, public opinion shifted in opposition to those wars as quickly as probably any war in U.S. history, um, certainly among the the, the the most rapid shifts in public opinion, you know, especially when it came to the, the war in Iraq. And I think growing out of that, you see since really 2006, 2007, 2008, it being impossible for U.S. leaders to Contemplate or to propose a large-scale ground invasion of another country. Now they have, you know, pursued more covert strategies, including drone strikes and, you know, the use of bases and special forces uh, operators around the world. Um, but I think it reflects this growing anti-war sentiment that people just don't support. Uh, large scale war is the way you know, a fair number of people, although so many did not you know, prior to the war in, in, in Iraq, of course. Um, but I think Trump reflects that. He reflects, he realizes that people across the political spectrum, it's not just, you know, lefties who are who are opposed to, to war. You have a large component of the, the Republican Party and Republican base that is sick and tired of imperialist wars, sick and tired of the spending involved, sick and tired of the death. Um, you have libertarians. Um, you have, of course, people on, on the left as well. Uh, and I think we need to recognize that this sentiment exists and build on it uh, to really reign, not just rein in but reverse the and and dismantle the permanent war system, especially lo- before we end up in an, another war.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love I love my friend Sarah Lazar, and if she listens to this, she'll have a laugh on her. she'll have a smile on her face. I actually, I haven't read the book, so I, I can't speak to it as well as she can, but I'm not as critical, someone who's been involved with anti-war activism for the last 15 years, the proposals that you make or that, you know, that she referenced in the, in the notes that I'm using and then also what I've seen in previous interviews, to me, it's like Bernie Sanders, it's like, is Bernie what I want? no. But if we were to have implemented Bernie's policies, it would be quite revolutionary within the U.S. context. It seems to me that your proposals are very much similar, where would I like to get rid of 95% of the Pentagon budget? Absolutely. Would I like to do X, Y, or Z? Absolutely. But we're nowhere near that, and what you are proposing would significantly change uh, the context of militarism and our relationship, I think, to empire, and at least... In a significant way, push us in the direction that we should go. So, I would like for you to talk a little bit about what you think can be done about this specific policy proposals, all the way maybe to even bigger ideas.
1: Sure. Well, and I would begin again with movements because I think we have to recognize that, in addition to the long term and growing anti war sentiment in the country, we're in a moment of unprecedented activism and social movement, activism and and protest, you know, the largest protest movement in U.S. history in the form of the Black Lives Matter protests that have have emerged in the last half year, Um, coupled with, you know, the history of the Occupy Wall Street movement, coupled with um, the kinds of localized mutual aid activism. I consider that a kind of activism that we've seen in in the pandemic, Um, that coupled with The pandemic itself which i think has opened people's minds to structural changes that were simply unthinkable before the pandemic especially with you know the trillions of dollars being spent in pandemic relief that has shown i think many people i hope it showed has shown everyone that the money was always there that when they said oh we don't have enough money to improve schools we didn't we don't have enough money for universal health care, it's too expensive. We don't have enough money for affordable housing. That was, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to curse. And that was oh, yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Um, uh, and the money, I mean, the money was always there because the military budgets you were just talking about diverted those funds from, you know, taking care of hunger in this country and, and around the world. Um, from building affordable housing, from ending homelessness, from providing universal health care, so the military budgets alone would have would have allowed us to, to do those things. Um, but the ability of the United States to take on debt has means that the U.S. could have been taking care of these pressing human needs rather than diverting funds uh, to you know fighting wars that have been catastrophes um, uh, that are again you know difficult to put in, in words, especially when you know three to four million. People have died in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, um, Libya, Yemen, uh, and Syria, in just the US fighting in Syria. Um, Three to four million plus 37 million or more displaced in the eight most violent wars the US has been involved in since 2001, injuries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think we shouldn't um, overlook the, the human damage that these wars have cost, especially for, for non-U.S. citizens. We should also focus on the, 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 the damage that have been done to, to U.S. military personnel, the dead, of course, um, the family members who've lost loved ones, the people who've come back. I mean, how, how many uh, veterans uh, aren't injured by their military service? I would say you know everyone, either physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, but what can we do, you know, to get back to your your central question, what can we do to change this? I do call for, in, in my book, The United States of War, I call for a, a, a cut in the, the U.S. military budget, of cutting it by half. Um, you know, there are different proposals. Um, Bernie Sanders called for a 10% propo- uh, cut in the military budget, um, which gained some support in Congress, but relatively little um, but not in significant support um, in this past budget cycle. Um, others are calling for a cut of a third of the military budget. But let's just, you know, if, the, you, if, if we cut the US military budget in half, the US military would still have the world's largest military budget, um, still larger than China, still larger than, than Russia. You know, the current US military budget is larger than the next 10 military budgets combined. Uh, Most of those military budgets are those of U.S. allies. Uh, So again, the U.S. military budget is totally out of proportion to any threats the United States is facing. Completely out of control, out of control. And, you know, helping people to see what, you know, I think President Eisenhower put best, to see that this is a theft, that our money, taxpayer money, is being stolen. Uh, Now, you know, how do we change that system? You know, I spoke about the power of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower identified. That power is very real and very significant. There are a lot of people who want to protect the size of the military budget, and we can't pretend otherwise. So that's why I, I, I offer sort of a range of proposals. One would be converting weapons manufacturers into green industries and other civilian industries. So basically saying, we're not going to take your contracts completely. We're going to get you to, to pursue civilian um, construction and production uh, capacities um, because it is just going to be too hard to take down Lockheed Martin. I'm not, not, I'm not convinced of that, but but it's certainly one strategy. Um, you know, another is to convert a significant part of the, the U.S. military into an unarmed Humanitarian and disaster relief response force. You know, there, I'm sure, as you know, there are many, perhaps most, perhaps all people who join the US military, you know, want to do good in the world. They want to serve others. They want to help. And people often, when they get sent on humanitarian missions, feel good about doing that. I think people in the United States, young people, especially who need opportunities, could do that work on an unarmed basis. So that would be another form of conversion. And these are just a few of the proposals that I I've offered.
0: Makes a lot of sense. I mean one of the things we've talked about for years, at least the last decade, has been how can we repurpose the massive logistical capacity of the US military to deal with global yes. climate change? We're already all over the world. That would also require different relationships diplomatically with our partners and people around the world, which would be a great thing. So okay, the base is here. Do you want us Obviously, they should have first say in that, you know, if they democratically decide. We think there's a utility to having this base and creating a partnership with the United States to deal with climate change. Excellent. I mean, before this interview last night, I was going through some Pew research numbers. It's interesting. I'm sure this is different in the global south and in other places. But I will say that it's interesting when I was looking at the opinion polls for support for bases in Germany. There's a big divide amongst older and younger Germans. So if you look at it, the poll's kind of all over the place. And it it seems like the majority, it's like very milquetoast on both sides. There are people who are very much against it. And the opinion polls show people who would very much want it. But there seems to be a big opening, say, with younger Germans. Um, You know, they're 18 to 35 years old, where 60% of them are questioning, like, is this useful to have this here? and. You know, those are the kind of things that we've been talking about for a long time. Well, not we, but I think a lot of people on the anti-war left have been trying to figure out, like, do you just get rid of everything? And to your point, there's a lot of people who want to join. I've, how do I say this? My position has changed on this because when I joined the Marine Corps in 2002, there were a lot of guys that I joined with who were like, I joined to go kill uh, towel heads, was quite literally the language that was used. I mean, after 9-11, it was this... Since then, however, I've met a lot of really thoughtful military personnel, veterans, members um, who are like, man, you know, we live in a hyper individualistic society. I just wanted to do something that was bigger than just doing something for myself. And I wanted to help. And I mean, how can you, okay, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, good intentions, bad judgment. So it's like, you know, like, the intentions are there. Like There there are a lot of younger people, and many of whom who are joining the military, who want to be a part of a collective project that's for our greater good. And if we can somehow transform how we think about the military and all of its equipment, all of its logistical capacities, and, and put that towards the greatest challenge of our time, which is dealing with climate change, it seems like not only the most reasonable thing to do, but also probably the best thing to do.
1: Yeah, I think I should... I You know, this idea for... Converting a significant part of the U.S. military into an unarmed humanitarian relief and disaster response force. I think I need to incorporate the the Green New Deal into that and, and shifting the economy toward a green economy. Because I think indeed that's a a challenge and a struggle that I think a lot of young people would want to be involved in. And just to, you know to underline this point a little bit more. Um, when I saw there there was that quasi documentary it was really a PR, um, you know, multi-part series on, on PBS that Mel Gibson did called Carrier, I don't know, probably about a decade ago. And it followed a, a, a Navy aircraft carrier around the world. And, you know, you have what, I don't know, five, six, seven thousand um, young, mostly young people, U- U.S. Navy personnel on this floating boat going around the world. And I thought, you know, how else could these Seven, six, five thousand um, young, mostly young people. Uh, what else could they be doing in the world? They could be doing so much good, if yeah, and you know, at home or around the world. Um, so we, I, th- I think we have to think in terms of those possibilities and build on, as you said, the tremendous logistical capabilities of of the U.S. military. I guess I would just say that you know the, the book also calls for the, the closure of most U.S. military bases abroad. um, I I think there is room for maintaining bases when democratically ruled countries um, wish to maintain bases. Um, I'm open to that and other possibilities like access agreements for for the military to gain access in an emergency or even some prepositioned locations where weaponry um, and supplies would be prepositioned. But I think just the other thing I, I, I would I think it would be a mistake to not say, and you you pointed to it when you mentioned you know people who signed up around the time you joined the Marine Corps talking about wanting to kill towel heads. Um, you know that sort of racist language uh, underlines the the racism that is you know another through line connecting you know the imperialism of the Spanish and other European empires and with Columbus's arrival. Uh, in Guantanamo Bay and in the Americas connects the, that imperialism to, to U.S. imperialism. And you see the same kind of racist slurs being used against Iraqis, Afghans today, and others. Um, similar, if and in some cases the same, racist slurs were used against Filipinos during the, the long counterinsurgency war in the Philippines between ni- 1899 and 1913. Similar language, of course, used against Native American peoples um, and, of course, against African Americans. So, uh, just lastly, you know, to, again to underline this because I, I think racism hasn't come up enough in our conversation. Um, you know, there's a journalist who, who traveled around the world visiting US military deployments in, in obscure and overlooked locations, and he found himself hearing again and again welcome to Indian country. I don't, you know, I don't know if that's a phrase you heard, but um, you know, that's not a coincidence that, that today or in recent years, U.S. military personnel would be referring to the countries in which they're deployed as Indian country. Right. It shows the sort of long-term racism that shaped the system of war.
0: And how deeply embedded that ideology runs. I mean, this idea that, yes. you know, that we're there to civilize and democratize, I mean, it... I was going to ask you one of the, and I know we've taken enough of your time today. We'll definitely have you back in the future if you're willing, because there's a lot of other stuff I'd like to talk to you about. And I actually need to give you proper respect and read the books. Um, This role of culture, um, I was thinking back to a book I read by a Canadian anthropologist, Ronald Wright, uh, What is America? And he's talking Mm. about this sort of interplay between the Enlightenment uh, tendencies and then the frontiersman culture how this has played out over the last however many years in the United States. And it much like U.S. foreign policy, much like dehumanization, racism, and so on, this continues to come up even today. I mean, in the midst of this election, in the midst of the uh, uh, massive waves of protests that we've seen over the last six months, we still see a lot of those divisions, um, where there there is a significant difference between living in Chicago and living two hours south of Chicago in rural Illinois. Um, and... I guess I'm wondering how – so there's specific policy things we can do. On the other end, and I don't think there's such a clear answer to this, and I don't expect you to have the answer, but I'm interested in your thoughts on how do we address those cultural – you know, those cultural components, those ideological components of, of U.S. militarism, how deeply ingrained, even the sense of manifest destiny, that the United States is special, uh, that we're appointed uh, by God in some ways to have this position in the world. What are your thoughts on that sort of cultural, ideological uh, aspect of U.S. empire and militarism?
1: It's such a good and, and, and difficult question and, and something that I think needs to be uprooted. My quick answer is to say that we need to replace it with a, a different positive vision of what the United States is. We can't just um, respond and try to replace it with a, a negative. We can't just critique, uh, you know, American exceptionalism and the manifest destiny ideology and the kind of you know racist nationalism. We need to critique all of that. But I think we also need a a positive vision for what the United States can be and and for what especially young people can can hold on to and see as part of their identity. Uh, I think, you know, it is very difficult work, though, because it is so deeply embedded, you know, from uh, the prevalence of camouflage in our our fashion to, you know, the flyovers that. At uh, uh, football games, and you know, here I'm. I'm talking about the sort of the militarism that that I think is deeply intertwined with the American exceptionalism and manifest destiny and racist nationalism. Um, all of it, it it needs to be uprooted. Uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a group, dissenters, that is trying to organize young people on college campuses and elsewhere, and one of I think their central aim is to change sort of the common sense when it comes to, to militarism and, and, and war, um, to change young people's feelings about and consciousness about thinking about, um, about, about war and militarism and, you know, the intertwined uh, issues of manifest destiny and, and, and the kind of racist nationalism we see. Uh, but it, it, it is going to require, I think, making visible... The, the remnants of, uh, of, of Manifest Destiny, for example, in our culture today. And again, I guess I would, I would say that in my mind, this represents an unprecedented moment where we could shift that consciousness, shift that culture, um, shift those that common sense uh, because of the pandemic, um, but probably even more because of the Black Lives Matter protests that they have enabled people to question givens, things that we have taken, many people have taken for granted in in U.S. society like the police. Um, I think it allows us to question larger ideological constructs, larger cultural uh, givens. um, And I think we need to take advantage of this moment to really uh, try to transform um, uh, the ideology that has so shaped and so destructively shaped, uh, the minds and lives of so many of us, it, my, myself included, who grew up, you know, playing that war game, Cowboys and Indians and grew up, you know, playing, uh, you know, other war games. And, you know, it's, it's part of all our lives. I'm not saying that I, have freed myself from these ideological constructs. I think it's work we all have to do.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, I really appreciate your time today. Number one, number two, again, thank you for your work, and I say that as someone who, after doing many years of anti-war activism and organizing, I, I maintain that outside of climate change and a few other horrific issues like sex trafficking and others, there's not there's not too uh, many issues that are darker to sort of constantly revisit. Um, the history of U.S. empire is brutal and horrific and murderous, and you know, I give a lot of credit to folks who do the work. So I'm not just kind of pulling your chain. I I very much appreciate what you're doing. Um, Because, you know, we have been there and tried to do it. And some of us have had to move on to other projects, because if we spent any more time focusing on US empire, uh, you know, we might have been self destructive, or something like that. And that's something also that I've seen over the last 15 years. So I know you're probably older than me, I know you're definitely more qualified than me, but as someone who might have a little more experience with the activist side, all I can say is please uh, pace yourself and do it in a sustainable way because we mm-hmm. need people like you around for a long time. And I've seen a lot of really good journalists, activists, writers who've focused on these issues, you know, burn out um, and go away for some time. And, and that's unfortunate. And I think we should do a better job of taking care of each other and looking out for each other. So,
1: well that was really beautifully said. And I, I I think that is so important to remember. And I, I would just say, you know, right back at you and thank you for all that you have been doing, especially as someone who has seen, you know, the workings of U S empire up close and, and the, the, the bloody horrific aspects of it, um, as someone who's been in the military and then been, been able to come back and, and transform that experience into something so positive. And, and I, I, yeah, really appreciate all you have done and, um, feel lucky to have had the chance to talk together.
0: Oh, thank you. Same here. Next podcast, we'll just compliment each other for the whole hour and a half. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) No, next time I'd really like to talk to you about strategy and ideas. And I think maybe that could be the next conversation. And I would like to wait until we see what the political landscape looks like. So let's see who wins. Let's see what Congress looks like. Then let's have another conversation about what we go, where we go from here.
1: I would love that. That's where my work is going to be focused right after the election. So that would be perfect timing. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. So right on.
0: Thank you, David, so much. Thank you. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we'll see you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org that's p-a-r-c media.org make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel below also you could find us on instagram at parkmedia facebook at politics art roots culture and you could find me on twitter at vince Emanuele.